Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we speak with Jason Kaminsky, who's not only a good friend, but the Chief Operating Officer for KWH Analytics. Most folks in the industry have heard of KWH. Uh, they're a market leader in the solar risk management. Our teams have worked together for a while. They really are focused on you know, the next phase of solar and how we're best using data uh, to better manage our assets and, and ensure our revenue. A lot to be learned in this conversation. And Jason and the team at KWH are really doing some cutting edge stuff. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jason, thanks so much for joining me here at Experts Only. Thank you, John, for having me. Great to be here. So you're sitting in Berkeley today. You grew up in California, went to UCLA and Stanford. You know, as a West Coaster, you know, well, how did you grow up getting interested in in clean energy? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, a lot of it really started, I'd say, really in my formative years at UCLA. So, I, you know, I grew up in a suburb of LA, not a ton of access to the outdoors, but uh, in UCLA, I got more into rock climbing, fell into a group of folks that spent a lot more time outdoors. And as part of my, really to fulfill my GE credits, started taking classes in the environment and, and learned a lot. And at that time, this is early 2000s, uh, when I was looking at basically degrees to take, a lot of the environmental degrees were like uh, landfill design and wastewater treatment yeah. plant design. And environmental uh, science. I, I, yeah, environmental science. Yeah, we didn't. Now UCLA has an institute in the environment. They didn't have this back then, and I kind of lucked out in some ways that I I ended up taking an atmospheric science as my as my main degree with math, and it was basically a climate change degree before they had climate change degrees. And I kind of fell into it because I like sciences, but I wasn't so into biology, and that was like the physical sciences major. Um, but I ended up basically studying climate change in, in college, which was a uh, that's amazing. Yeah, kind of before any anyone else was doing it. And the thing I always think back to to that era is this was early 2000s, as I noted. The themes were always this is going to be so challenging to address because it will never affect anyone in this room. Climate change is a multi-generational issue. Right. And it was all about discount rates. And obviously here we are sitting and, you know, Biden is having his climate change day and it's fire, you know, the fire is the season were worse than ever. But it's amazing how quickly the science has evolved on that front. It is. It is. The I had Michael Mann on, uh, who's a sort of famous uh, Penn State mm-hmm. scientist. It was just a fascinating conversation of the both the science and also the politics of it uh, before. So, did you, you when you finished UCLA, did you go right to to Stanford for your MBA, or was there in between? I did. I went straight through, and I why, was... why an MBA? Like, what was what triggered you to think through that you wanted to go that that path? It's a good question. It was one part that policy has a lot of great work. For me, it was not the area I wanted to go spend my career. Science, even though that's what I studied, I didn't really view myself in a lab. And the speed of business for transformation and the opportunity there was really appealing. I'd also say, frankly, I was a little bit naive. No one told me you're not supposed to apply to an MBA program right. out of college. <laughs> so it ended up working out. It was a little bit of a crapshoot, but I, I was reading an article about MBA programs with a sustainability bent. And this is even, you know, this is before an inconvenient truth came out. So this was right. 
you know, it was not really top of mind for a lot of my classmates, but I guess the, the topics I was interested in resonated with the uh, admissions folks. So I was able to go to Stanford and, you know, that's a two, I was actually there two and a half years because um, I did a, a master's in uh, energy as well. And I spent a lot of time just exploring and learning for myself. I mean, that was pretty early career. Uh, at that time, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do energy, if I wanted to do corporate social sustainability, CSR, so corporate social responsibility. You know, carbon trading was big at the time. So I spent yeah. a lot of time just really exploring for myself and fell into the energy groove right around the second year. Um, and had the opportunity, I had a few internships, but I got to spend time in Houston with Chevron was one of my internships. And it, wow. was a, it was a good, safe 10 weeks to go be in the belly of the beast. Yeah. And um Got to work on a lot of, I mean, I get why people work there. It's very interesting work. They send you all over the world. Uh, but I actually went there and I spent a lot of time. My boss there was very uh, open to me exploring. And I spent time with like Chevron Technology Ventures, who's doing VC investing and with yeah. some of their other uh, more clean tech groups. And he's like, it's great that you're exploring this, but you know that at Chevron, that's a CLM. And I asked him, what does a CLM mean? He said, it's a career limiting move to not work <laughs> in oil and gas if you're right. at Chevron. Right. And then a few years later, they like pulled all the investment to go invest in a natural gas <laughs> asset. Yeah. So uh, it was really jokes on them now. Yeah, really. I know. So it's, <laughs> it was a great experience. Um, yeah, the two years there, and and really was able to focus my own interests on the energy space for all the reasons I assume many of us are in it, just the global implications and the yeah. pace of innovation. And then you ended up at Wells, right? Working on tax equity. Right out of school, I worked for a company called SPG Solar. Oh, you did? I didn't realize that. Okay. I did. Yeah. So SPG was one of the really the biggest uh, developers at the time. This is uh, now kind of 2009 era. And it was really SPG Solar and PowerLite were kind of the two big competing right. California developers. A lot of like one megawatt tracker projects, which at the time were huge. And yeah, at that time, modules were th like $3.50 a watt. And I was in a, a chief of staff role basically to the CEO. Yeah. And it was, that was probably where I first began thinking about solar being a lot more complicated than it seems on yeah, the surface. Yeah, right. So <laughs> we got to go to China uh, and it's like tour factories because we were a big oh, buyer of equipment. So you show yeah. up in China and they, and they take you around and you go to one factory and it's hard to really tell is it good or bad, but <laughs> you go to 10 factories and you begin to see a fact pattern. And, um, you know, you had some where every, like they made you put on the booties because it was a clean room environment. And you had others where, you know, the flash testing was a temperature controlled and they were like, you could like look at the cells and tell that they were both, that they weren't, you know, they weren't wow. coming out flat. So they get, you know, as soon as you laminate them, they basically get squashed. So it makes total sense in hindsight why Solar Buyer and CEA and some of these companies are out there watching the manufacturing. Yeah. But it was really, yeah, the first time I really began thinking about the, the, the risk, I guess, and kind of risk management in solar. And we, we came back from one of those trips and we were giddy because we saw on like a whiteboard from a conference room we were passing that the module manufacturers had like a pathway to a dollar a watt. And we were like, oh my God, can you imagine a dollar a watt for a solar panel? Yeah. <laughs> I think they're forecasting like 2018 or 2020 or something. And obviously we, I mean, we beat that by a few years. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thanks to Sunshine yeah, so and some of the other initiatives. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at SPG for a year and a half. Um, Can you imagine the marketing person that just put that on and it tilted the whiteboard so you could see it as you're <laughs> show them this. <laughs> exactly. I don't know how, how planned it was. They were very orchestrated events. 
it's China. It's all planned. Yeah, and SPG. <laughs> so SPG, we um, you know, we worked a lot with Sun Edison too. So we were an EPC, and I think we kind of told ourselves the project financing side was easy, and we, right. we wanted to get more into it. And then that's been drinking at that point because <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> it's not well. It's not easy. Yeah, I think yeah. we were a little bit naive to be honest. But um, anyway, I got laid off from that job. So yeah. right out of Stanford, first job, get laid off like any good uh, solar company does. And I, I, it was in hindsight a much more um, critical juncture than it seemed. I had a job offer from Solyndra. Wow. Like three months before they imploded, and. I really like the hiring manager and I was like, look, I love this job, but I'm pursuing this other opportunity to see where it goes. And he was, bless him. He, uh, he let me pursue and I ended up at Wells Fargo. That's doing amazing. tax equity. Yeah. So you got right into the belly of the beast on the tax equity side. And how long were you at Wells? I was at Wells oh. for three and a half years. And yeah. I learned very quickly that project financing is not easy at all. No. no. Um, a lot. Yeah. I mean, my first deal, I think I had, 800 pages of legal agreements that I had to learn and then negotiate like in the right out of the gate. Yeah. I do want to get back to that, how that, that experience sort of, you know, transformed the way you're thinking today with kilowatt, but, but for, for folks that aren't familiar with kilowatt analytics, you know, you, you've got to check them out, but we're going to talk through some of the transformational work that you and your partners are doing, but for folks that aren't familiar, can you give, give a little commercial on what kilowatt's doing? Yeah, so KWH Analytics, um, Bay Area company, as you noted, although now pretty much operating remotely. And we really view ourselves as the leader in risk management. So the thesis really starting seven or eight years ago was as industries evolve, the importance of data and the availability of data just increases. So yeah. the analogies that we looked at a lot for inspiration were like Experian, right? Banks are underwriting consumers uh, and there's companies that have data on how we perform. Uh, and then self basically provide that back to the banks to inform their underwriting. Uh, CoreLogic does it for mortgages. There's industries that, or companies that do that uh, across a lot of industries. So we really set out to build a risk management firm, a data analytics firm, to kind of sit at the at the intersection of finance, solar, and and data. And from that, we've kind of built out a few product set. But that's really was the founding thesis. So you know, let's let's talk through. I know our teams have worked together in the past, and there's a bunch of different sort of products that you guys are. Have, mm -hmm. have developed, but uh, you know, I was actually talking to the, our head of asset management this morning, Zoe Berkeley, and you know, she really loves KWH and the the sort of um, night vision goggles that you give her into uh, you know, sort of analyzing the products. And you know, and I think she she actually specifically asked wanted me to ask you this question: like, if you uh, you know, how do we as an industry sort of refine our P fifty expectations so we can become more sort of accurate and realizing what we're doing. Cause you know, as we're looking at pro you know, projects like we rely on that so heavily on the yeah. finance side, but really the data is not true yet. Right. So. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, John. And we, yeah, we've enjoyed working with Zoe and the, the clean cap team has always been very forward thinking. Maybe I'll answer that a little bit just to set the stage. So yeah, please. I'm kind of fast forwarding. I'm skipping a step, but we've been able to aggregate a very large database about how solar assets are performing. And we've done that through some of our products, through some of our industry partnerships. And late last year, we were seeing both from kind of our own underwriting as well as our conversations with our clients that a lot of portfolios were not meeting their performance expectations. Um, and we decided to basically do a more rigorous study. And, and DNV had put out a, a preliminary study 
last year that basically said their estimates ended up being about 3% aggressive and something called the solar risk assessment, which you can go on our website and find. And we did a more comprehensive study with 10 of the, the largest asset owners in the industry. And our number over the whole US was 6.3%. Uh, so even if you take into account weather fluctuations, over the last few years, our P50 estimates, the most likely quote unquote uh, right. production estimate has just been aggressive. And it look, it varies by region. Some of them are fine. I mean, the top quartile are performing fine. Some of them are doing even worse than 6.3%. So it's always been, I mean, ever from the beginning, it's been our hope that we could use our data to really provide, uh, I'll call it more direct insight into how these projects could and should perform. Yeah, And we were fortunate to be able to do that uh, with your team and, and more formally last year and release something that we call this solar technology asset risk uh, comps product, basically. And what we're able to do is take any project and mine our database and find an industry cohort of similar looking projects. So similar region, uh, tracker versus fixed tilt, uh, some of the same technologies. Mm -hmm. And look and say, okay, you're building this project. You have this estimate from your IE, from your independent engineer. And let's compare that to how 50 other projects are actually performing out in the field. Right. <laughs> and, you know, maybe your project will perform better and there's a good reason for that. But that's never really been available to the industry, pretty much. Not at like all. you don't you don't buy a house without knowing how other houses in your <laughs> neighborhood are selling for. But we've been really flying blind for a long time as an industry. So it's been let me ask you really two nice. core questions of that, you know, sure. for the folks that aren't as familiar with what you do, wh where are you pulling that original data from that's now created this pool, right? Because of mm -hmm. some of the relationships you've had with uh, some of the big financing firms, for instance, like, is that where you're getting the, the core of this material? Uh, it's a mix. Some of them are from com commercial relationships. When we sell people products, typically we've, we borrowed a lot from other industries. So we typically say, as long as we anonymize and aggregate it, yeah. no one can really tell whose data it is, generally folks are comfortable with that. So it's one yep. part of the commercial relationships. In some instances, we're working with firms who are just like, yeah, I, I think what the work you're doing is important and we want you know, to support uh, and frankly be more competitive as bidders because we're losing right. a lot of deals because the market's too aggressive. So we have both, I'll call it commercial and just kind of industry consortia that we're a part of where that data is pulled from. And then who is the, you know, clean capital is a good example of, who you guys call the STAR report, right? Is that the mm -hmm. nickname mm -hmm. for it? Who, yeah, what, are, what are some of the other customer profiles? Like who, who thinks that information is, is critical to them? Yeah, the areas where we're seeing being used most fulsomely, one would be uh, just the M&A segment where there's a lot of disagreement, it turns out, right. between a buyer and a seller when you're looking at a project or a portfolio usually for a new portfolio, could even be an operating portfolio because the way people are looking at weather these days, I'm coming to appreciate, often you get it wrong. So that, that's kind of one space. Right. Um, the other is the financing market. So there's been a lot of banks that are, I've come to appreciate going through a lot of pain when their portfolios underperform. And I can tell you when I was at Wells Fargo, <laughs> I was maybe fortunate, maybe unfortunate, but I worked on a deal that went bad. Um, the sponsor went bankrupt. I mean, this was Tioga, ended up selling the assets into what became S Power. So the, the ending is good. But at the time, it was very, very painful. And when yeah. something is not going well, you get a lot of attention at a bank. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so what we're hearing from the bankers is like, 
look, I can have structural protections, but this is a problem for us when our whole fleet underperforms and we want to make sure we get it right. Yeah. Um, so those are the two. We're doing some work with the asset management side as well, but um, those are kind of the two main areas we're seeing used. And then the other, you know, one of the other key products you guys have developed is the solar put, right? Mm-hmm. Something that is really being um, looked at closely by the finance industry. And, you know, as we look more and more at the long-term, you know, viability of these assets, you know, mm-hmm. I, I always, we talk about a lot on the show, actually, if you look at the last 10 years, it was about sort of the emergence of the market. Uh, now the fundamentals are strong, cost of capital is coming down. Um, mm-hmm. But you guys are really the, one of the first to bring forward such a unique solution to really ensure the long-term revenue of these deals. So can you talk for a little bit about the emergence of the solar put? Like what, what drove you all to look at this option and then how, that, how did that develop into the product it is today? Yeah. So if I rewind a few years, the, the way a project finance lender or tax equity looks at it, uh, looks at basically financing a solar project is I have hopefully or typically a fixed revenue stream, but I have volatility, right? I have volatility about whether it's not because it's going to produce. I have credit risk. I have structural risk. But typically, uh, for those that aren't super adept at project finance, if I'm the bank, John, and you come to me and you say, my project's going to produce a million dollars a year of revenue or of EBITDA, I'm going to say, great, I'm going to structure you alone so that I'm only exposed to 700,000 of that. So... If it produces a million, which you're telling me, well, great. But if not, I don't want that. I don't want that risk. You know, if your production estimate's wrong, if the sun's not as, you know, if your if your inverters go down, whatever the risk is. So we looked at it and we said, well, hey, we know a lot about production risk. We have a big database about how these projects perform. We know where they're located. We know the technologies. We can actually charge a reasonable price and guarantee you, the bank, eight hundred fifty grand. Right. So it's you have basically a large insurance company backstopping the production and you pair that with a fixed price. Now your fixed price, your fixed, your fixed quantity gives you basically a fixed revenue stream. So we're seeing lenders say, that's great. I can actually lend 850,000 instead of 700,000 with these products in place. So it's really enabled, I'll call it optimization of the capital stack. You see in most other asset classes, the banks are lending much more to infrastructure than they are in solar and um you know as an as an industry it's really allowed us to you know help sponsors recycle their capital or increase their uh you know their returns on these projects by 30 to 50 basis points can you give sort of a case study or two uh i mean there's been you guys have had some pretty major announcements uh for instance on you know the dc cal flats project project for instance you know, are you seeing this more at the utility scale? Are you seeing it come along in the CNI scale uh, products? Like, where do you see the, the most uh, engagement so far? Yeah, it's a great question. We've actually done it on all segments. So we've done it in residential, DG, kind of small utility portfolios, and on standalone large assets. What we're excited about for 2021 is the refinancing market. I mean, yeah. you have a lot of portfolios that tax equities rolled off five or six years now. And spreads are just much lower than they were then. So not only do we think people are going to be refinancing, but if you can get an extra 10% on your loan sizing to then redeploy into growing your business, yeah, um, we think that that's going to be the, the new area. So we've, you know, we've I'll come you, we're along. We're trying to buy those, so we'll buy them and then refinance them. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. So that's uh, 
you know, it's, it's really progressed. I mean, when we started, we did it with a single bank. Now we have 20 banks uh, plus that have utilized the product. You know, we did our first bond market deal last year. So it's really, I'd say, adept, kind of agnostic to segment, agnostic to financing type. And yeah, we're, I mean, we're excited for the opportunity. It, uh, it, it doesn't really make sense in my mind for banks, which have to be experts in a lot of things, in credit and structuring, to also be experts in like, how is this panel going to yeah, interact totally. with Sunshine? It's not, not in their They don't have the team to do it. They just don't have the, the <laughs> exactly. team to do it. Exactly. So, um, so first of all, tell everyone to go to kwhanalytics.com. You can get a lot of this information of the solar put on stars and some of the other uh, awesome programs they've got going on. I do want to, uh, obviously, keep talking KWH, but uh, you know, you you also are involved with uh, an organization that focuses on sustainability and data, right? An initiative, uh, data sustainability initiative, and I, I, I want to talk maybe not so much about that organization, but the role data is going to play over the growth of our market over the next decade. Because as you said before, you know, as, as we've emerged from, you know, 2009 when, you know, people didn't know if these panels even could function and the sun shined enough in a place like New Jersey to put a project up to, you know, we're a high, pr- pretty well-functioning, fundamentally strong industry today. But there's still so much we can do and learn from the data standpoint to help us really grow and scale and meet the point where we're going to get you know, a trillion dollars worth of investment a year, which is what we need to do to solve the climate crisis. You know, the mm-hmm. recent reports they were at five hundred billion uh, today. So we got to double that to really really solve the climate crisis. What mm-hmm. role do you think, think data is going to play in helping to sort of unleash that capital? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fundamental. So I think the organization you're referring to is I help organize a meetup that used to be in the Bay Area, but is moving virtual as well, called Data Science for Sustainability. Oh, cool. And um, it has been great for me because I've learned a lot about other sustainability industries that I'm, you know, I'm a mild beef in solar, but there's so many applications, whether it's in mobility or whether it's in fishery management or conservation management uh, or wildfire management, where there's a lot of innovation and technologies coming to bear now about solutions using data, using cloud infrastructure uh, to help solve it. So, you know, I guess the way that I think about it is to meet those By the way, targets. Quickly, for people that are maybe yeah. listening that are interested in that, like how do they become part of that conversation? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think you just go to meetup.com and you search for data science for sustainability. Data science, um, great. So, yeah, so it's a meetup. We have, uh, you know, speakers come uh, and some of those are on YouTube. You might be able to look for it on YouTube as well. Cool. But, yeah, the I think the challenge that we're seeing is that historically banks and insurance companies, maybe insurance companies are a little bit better at using data, but aren't on the whole (laughs) good at it, at least in-house. So that creates opportunities for third-party companies like us to come in and say, we have good data infrastructure. We really understand a certain risk really well, and we're going to help you understand it better. So we're doing it in solar. I mean, there's opportunities probably in any of these segments, frankly, for companies that have data, whether it's energy efficiency data or fisheries data, uh, to come in and help these much larger capital institutions better deploy their capital and better manage their risk. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, we're, we we talk internally a lot about data and how to you know better structure it, even within clean capital. I mean, having some insights on what we can do, you know, there's such a need, like I think, we'll, just a f- future conversation, but uh, not recorded about how we can work together on that. 
Because yeah. I feel like it's something that we've been wrestling with a lot as a firm as we're growing our assets and our management. You know, that's it's a space that's just really ripe for for opportunity. And I think you guys are uniquely sitting in a place to catch that opportunity and then do something with it. Yeah, I think the other thing that's been nice to see the evolution of is that really not all data is created equal. So right. there is this perception that data is valuable to me as an entity. And I kind of think of it as, you know, there's a spectrum of that. So we work a lot with operating data. And the question we often get is like, how do you get that data? And I think a lot of companies are realizing, look, this is often reported. Um, a lot of what we do is like get higher quality data. We clean it, we contextualize it. But that's a different kind of class of data than like, what's your return on this project? Or like, what PPA exactly. did you just sign? And it's been, help. I'd say, helpful for us as an organ as a industry to have people say, you know, there's a certain kind of data that like, frankly, isn't really that helpful to me in a silo, but also isn't really like business confidential. And a lot of what we do is try to facilitate conversations as well between people that are, I'd say, doing similar kinds of work, but all in a silo, even though it's not competitive. So like yeah. CleanCaps participated in, in uh, one of our solar performance management roundtables where it's like, how do we optimize the performance of these assets? It's not really a, a confidential conversation, but they right. don't. there's not really forums for performance managers to speak to other performance managers. Um, so it's nice to see that as we progress as an industry, more of that conversation is happening, more of the data sharing is happening. Um, I have to imagine it's happening in other segments as well. Yeah, and, and I feel like, you know, we're just getting the place where people even know how to how to own and manage that data, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is a big part of it. So, well, well, first of all, Jason, thanks so much for being here and talking through this. I always ask sort of the same ending question to my my guests, and I want to take you back to maybe either transitioning to UCLA or even walking out of Stanford, and you can go back to uh, Menlo Park there and sit down and have a beer with yourself. You know, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Yeah, it's um. You know, my first management job was actually at UCLA, and I was a terrible manager. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm just going to, I don't want to micromanage. I'm going to let them manage themselves. And yeah, I've, I've progressed from that. I may not be the world's best manager, but I've come to appreciate that management. You're a CLO is, these days, my friend. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a context for it, but there's a lot that comes with coaching and comes with feedback, both giving and receiving and managing sure. with empathy. And I think if I could like replay some of my horrific management experiences in the past, it's don't, don't be so hands-off. I mean, it's, it's, you know, mo some of the most rewarding parts of the job are working with the team, hiring well, like helping people that I work with flourish. So anyway, that's not, that's, I know that there's still a lot that I have to learn in that, but yeah. it's, um, it's something that I think as I look back on, I've, I've learned kind of the hard way <laughs> yeah. along the way. Lead with vulnerability, lead with honesty. And, uh, you know, I think the team comes along with it. It's, 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 it's I mean, I, like I walked out of college as an elementary education major and went right in the army. And, you know, after spending six months in a school learning about basically rocket science because we we're shooting artillery pieces, the next day you show up at a unit and you're supposed to lead a group of 40, this time 40 men. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, holy shit. Good luck. Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm supposed to lead these people. But that dynamic for me was so transformational in terms of this leadership training and how to be humble and how to you know learn from others. Um, I've been lucky enough to carry it out, but we don't have enough of that training, even at a Stanford MBA, right? Where they're sort of walking you through, you know, you can, you can learn a model, but that's completely different than managing people. 
right? Yeah, and, and that exactly. leadership and, is so critical to success. And I would say for young managers, you know, everyone screws it up the first time. Right. And <laughs> you learn from it as long as you can, <laughs> can be humble and learn from your mistakes. That's the important part. Well, well, thank you so much for doing this. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Enjoy the conversation. Absolutely. And I want to thank Sarah Matsui and, and the team at KWH Analytics for helping to put this together. And our producers, Colin Young and Carly Vatten. And as always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.